We're going to be looking at the book of Revelation tonight. Hayden Robinson said once in a while he preaches a topical message and then afterwards he asks God to forgive him. And uh, that's a joke. Topical messages, we go to different places in the Bible and preach from a lot of different passages. We're an expository message. We stay in one chapter and really learn that chapter. And after uh, two weeks of Jude and all that in-depth stuff, maybe you need something simple tonight. Uh, and uh, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 1. On tomorrow, I will drive to St. Louis, my wife and I. My daughter-in-law uh, was due Friday. Feels like she's going to have the baby in labor. And uh, her mother passed away when she was in college. Talking on the phone to her mom, she got in an automobile accident. The other person's fault. She was killed instantly. So my daughter-in-law loves my wife, and so we're going to go there and be there this week, be back Friday. I will not be here Wednesday. I am here tonight, but uh, will not be here Wednesday. I'll be here uh, the next several weeks, all the services, but you know how that goes in my life. But I just felt I couldn't say no. She's asked and asked and asked, and so I told Mary today we're going to drive out there tomorrow. So pray for us. Revelation chapter 1. You know, John, the older of the brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, writes this. He wrote three uh, epistles, the Gospel of John and the Apocalypse of John, which means to unveil or uncover. As you know, he was a fisherman, part of the inner circle, and uh, the one of the three that went with the Lord Jesus to the, in the valley and on the mountaintop, the Mount of Transfiguration, and great, great stuff, John a great man. We talk about Beatitudes. In fact, I mentioned weep with those who weep, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice. And so tonight we're going to look at the Beatitudes of Revelation. And someone coined the phrase, I guess, once, be this and you'll have the right attitude. And, and uh, we love the Beatitudes of Sermon on the Mount, but we're looking at the Beatitudes of the book of Revelation. Find chapter 1 and verse 3. We'll read one verse. The custom here is to stand. So when you find that, we'll stand and read together. John, uh, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Bless, Lord. We need you every hour. We need you now. Lord, I need you to be able to share from my heart uh, the word of God in the right manner. Lord, we just pray you'll speak to hearts. Thank you for this morning, for Brother Mike. And for what I hear was a great choir morning and just for blessing us and just for giving us life and, and, and new life in Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. We just can't praise you enough. We thank you, God, for sending Jesus and we praise the work he did on Calvary by giving his life, you sharing your son with us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> we find the word blessed several Greek words translated blessed in your Bible. We find this word here is translated five times in the New Testament as happy. If you look at John's gospel in John chapter 13, John chapter 13 and verse 17, you'll find it translated there happy. John 13, 17 here, John's, uh, Jesus is speaking, John 13, 17, excuse me, and he says, Jesus says, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. So the word can be translated several ways, happy. And here, here tonight in Revelation 1, it's translated blessed, same word. 
But there are other Greek words, as you know, the word eulogo is our word uh, eulogy, and that's translated blessed as well. And we go to a funeral and we eulogize people. Sometimes it's quite embarrassing if you know the person and someone eulogizes them, you think, oh no, those aren't honest statements they're making about this person. But I'm joking, but we know at funerals we eulogize. And I have a conviction, I don't eulogize people at funerals. If they say, will you do the eulogy? I say, I'll read the obituary, but unless I really know someone's life and testimony really well, I usually say, I, I just don't like to eulogize unless I really, really know that testimony. Because we can't preach someone into heaven. You know, their relationship with Jesus Christ is what... It matters and not what we say about them. But John translates it happy. Peter does a couple of times. Luke does in Acts. James, the other half-brother or the half-brother of Jesus, along with Jude, as we've been preaching from Jude, also translates it happy or the, the Bible translates it happy in those places. Um, but we look at chapter, uh, chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed are those who read, hear, and obey is uh, the way I've stated it. So just simply reading the book of Revelation is a blessing. You're blessed by doing it. And so it's important. A lot of people say, well, I don't read the book of Revelation. It's too difficult to understand. Just start reading it. I know John's gospel is easier, but John is referring, of course, to the book of Revelation here when he says, blessed is he that readeth. And he's not talking about the whole Bible. He's talking about what he just wrote. And so it's good to read the book of Revelation. And then, of course, it talks about listening and obedience. James says, don't be a hearer of the word only. You know, be a doer. Be a doer. How many times have we stated people who knew a lot of Scripture here, even cult leaders, James, uh, G, uh, Jim Jones and David Koresh, even one of our Russian uh, uh, leaders, not one of the czars, but one of the Russian, I'd call them, I guess, presidents, but uh, dictators of Russia, knew a, a great amount of the New Testament, but didn't know the Lord. So it's not just reading the Bible. It's not even memorizing the Bible. It's being obedient, being obedient unto the Word of God. So blessed are those who read. Look at chapter 14. Another beatitude is what we're calling these, even though really that phrase is referring to Matthew we're using it tonight. Blessed are those in chapter 14, verse 13, who die in the Lord. I've never preached this at a funeral, but it'd be a good text. He says in chapter 14, verse 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, write, write this down. He says, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Isn't that great? Hey, when you die in the Lord, it's a blessed thing. It's a happy thing. In fact, we're told to weep not as others that have no hope. We weep when we lose a loved one, but we don't weep for them if they're a believer. Why? They wouldn't want to come back to this place. Who'd want to come back to this earth when you spent one second with Jesus? <laughs> I mean, think of it. And so we don't weep for them in their, in their death in the Lord. We weep because we're going to miss them. On Father's Day, sometimes I'll just cry because I miss my dad. My dad has been gone since 97. He died at 70 of Lou Gehrig's disease. I'm only five years away from that age, and I'll still cry sometimes because I miss my dad. I don't cry for my dad because my dad wouldn't want to be back in that old body. 
a 210-pound man, 6'3", and 90 pounds when he died of Lou Gehrig's disease. He doesn't miss that old body. He's with the Lord. And we're told in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that we're supposed to comfort one another with the words that Paul shared. And what did he say? That the, that the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul said, uh, but I would not have you be ignorant, brethren. He goes in verse 13 through verse 18 of, of 1 Thessalonians 4. He talks about the rapture of the church. And he talks about the dead in Christ rising. Then he says, comfort one another with these words. So when we have someone we know has lost a loved one, what do we say to them? We comfort them. We tell them that they're with the Lord. And you don't need to weep for them. We don't ever say that while somebody's actually weeping, but we encourage them in a roundabout way and we somehow work those scriptures in and remind them that being in the Lord is a wonderful thing. Paul says to, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our spirit leaves our body at death. The soul is, our seat of the, is the seat of our emotions, but the spirit is that place that special place in you where God dwells. And, and we know that we've we taught on the tabernacle here, body, soul, and spirit. And if you can remember that, the outer court it had the least important furniture. And, and anybody could be in the outer court. And it's a type of our flesh. But then the holy place is a type of the soul. You know, our soul is a seat of our emotions. And our soul uh, isn't perfect. But our spirit is that place, that inner man. And only God knows our spirit, and he dwells there. And when we die, we know uh, the Bible, we read so many verses on that day that the Bible says the spirit leaves the body. And the spirit left the Lord Jesus' body at, at death. And that's interesting to read that and to think about that. So uh, precious, in the, is death, uh, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. So we're thankful. Blessed are those, here he says, who die in the Lord. They're happy. They're blessed. Then third, we look at chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 15. 16, 15. Behold, I come as a thief. We're talking about the rapture? No, we're talking about the return, the second advent. I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. 16, 15. So we're blessed if we watch for the Lord and while watching, we maintain a pure life. Watching and purity, two important things. Now, when we watch for the Lord, this doesn't mean like that cult that was out in California, out in Oregon it was, excuse me, and they sat on the side of the hill for months and months and months waiting for the Lord's return. They just sat there watching. Some cult set a date, which is always cultic. And the Lord didn't come, and they left there and left all their trash behind, and they were ridiculed on the news. That's not what it means to watch for the Lord. It means we're supposed to live a life knowing God's coming. And if we really expected God to come today, how would we live today? We'd witness to people we knew didn't know the Lord that we were concerned about. We'd make right our relationships. If we had a spat with our wife, We'd say, honey, I'm sorry for raising my voice at you. Or we would say whatever we needed to say. If we didn't get along with someone, we'd try to reconcile. Why? Because Jesus was coming. That's the idea here. Live your life as though he's coming because he is. He could come today. 
He's certainly closer than he was 2,000 years ago when John and Paul were looking so much for his coming. And so here we maintain a pure life. Look at Mark chapter 13, this matter of watching, and then we'll talk momentarily in a moment about purity. In Mark chapter 13, verse 33, we're told often to watch, and this is not really using our eyes. It's really living the right way because the Lord's coming. I like Mark chapter 13, verse 33. He says here, but of the day and that hour knoweth no man not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. I'm, in, I'm reading Mark 13, 33. And then he says here, verse 33, Take ye heed, watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. Watch and pray. Be ready, be ready. Verse 35, Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house cometh at evening, or at midnight, or at the cockcrowing, or in the morning. Verse 37, And what I say unto you, I say unto all, Watch. Watch. It's fascinating to me, the Lord Jesus Christ, how being God, knowing everything, chose sometimes to not know things. Like he says, only the Father knows. And how he operated and how he lived his life. He could have called 10,000 angels when he was on the cross. But instead he died for you and for me. And so we watch, we watch. And then we we live a life of purity while watching for him. Watch and pray. And going back to Revelation chapter 14 and, or, verse, or verse 16, 15, he says, again, he says, I, I come, watch, and he says, and keepeth his garments. That, that means to live a pure life. Doesn't really have to do with using your wash machine. It means to live a life without spot. Any little sin. There's one Greek word I've just about beaten your heads over the years, right? First John 1, 9, the word cleanse. Cather, catheterizo, our word catheter. They stick that tube in, the yuck comes out. I will make sure when I leave here someday by death or whenever God is done with me that you know that word. Because it takes a simple agreement with God to get rid of that little spot in your life. Hey, watch and watch in purity. Keep your garments unspotted. Keep your garments unspotted. I know that as a young kid, young guy, I would sometimes put a shirt on and I'd be getting ready for church and I'd get in the car and my mother would look around and examine us. And if I had a little spot on my shirt, she'd right away get something out and try and clean the spot out of my shirt. She taught me to do that. So now sometimes I'm looking and I see a spot and I do what mom did. You know, we don't want a spot. And our walk with Christ needs to be the same way. Pastor, how can I be spotless? You tell me on one hand that I have a sinful body. You do. There's nothing good in your flesh. So then how can I live a spotless life? By confessing moment by moment, day by day, what you do wrong. That's the greatness of grace and mercy. The moment you confess, you're cleansed. That's, I love that about our Lord. Our Lord could say, you know, you just did that the other day. That's not our Lord. He's never sarcastic, never demeaning. He's a wonderful, wonderful Lord, and we need to live a life of purity. Matthew said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that's really meaning 
that we will get to know God very well. God's a spirit. No man's seen him, but how can we get as close to God as though we're looking right at him, living a pure life? I, I like Philippians 4, 8, my mom's life verse. She used to annoy me with it. Whenever I was in a bad mood or I had a negative attitude, she'd say, find me, brethren, whatsoever things are just and whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are true. But the word pure, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure. And it goes on to say, think on these things. I think of um, other scriptures. 1 Timothy 5, says, keep thyself pure. Uh, Proverbs 21, 8, the last part says, for the pure, his word is right. James says in chapter 3, verse 17, wisdom that is from above is first pure. God never, ever gives us wisdom that's impure. Years ago, I had a lady come to me and say, well, I'm leaving my, wife, I'm leaving my husband so I can go off with my boyfriend because he's a good man. I don't remember what I said, but I know what I thought. Baloney. Malarkey, no good man's running around with a married woman. You know, and that's not, that doesn't come from God. She thought God was leading her. Nothing from heaven is ever impure. Every good thing cometh down from the Father of lights. Not some impure idea. Wisdom that is from above is first pure. That means primarily it's always going to be pure. So many times I hear, People talk about God and how God speaks to them and almost as though they hear a voice. And then in the next sentence, I hear him say something very impure. I always get a kick out of uh, championship nights after World Series or Super Bowls and guys get on there and they talk about they thank God. And, and I'm glad they do that. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes, you know, a week later, you hear that guy pulled over drunk driving. I'm thinking, what kind of relationship did he have with God? You know, and purity is very important in our life. And I want to be pure. Then chapter 19, verse 7. Chapter 19, verse 7, another beatitude. I love John 21, 12, come and dine, come and dine. You know, we will, a little country southern gospel song. First time I heard it was Memorial Baptist Tabernacle, 40 some years ago, uh, let's see, I've been married 42 years, so 41 years ago, coming Matt, the dying the master, and it goes on to say, we will feast at Jesus' table all the time, and it's got a, got a catchy tune. But I like the song, and, and there is truth in the song, and look at chapter 19, verse 7. It says here, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. So we rejoice because the marriage of the Lamb has come. That's going to be a great time. The Bible talks about the marriage. There's also going to be a marriage supper. We know that, you know. Today they had Pastor Appreciation Day up in um, uh, where I preached about an hour and 15 minutes from here, Spring City. And I got up and forgot that it wasn't for me and thanked them. No, I didn't really. I'm kidding. But we went to the, the fellowship hall and boy, did they have food. I mean, I thought, I'm going to enjoy this. No one knows me, but God was there. <laughs> and I got to that dessert table, and I thought, yeah, I really want five of those desserts. <laughs> and they had the little plate. I I'm glad they didn't have the big plate. They had the plate that big, the little skinny, flimsy plate. 
So I took a tablespoon of three and I had to be satisfied with that. I think I've done well in 65 years as far as desserts. Uh, but, you know, I love to eat. And I don't know what heaven's going to be like, but there's going to be a marriage supper. We know there's going to be fruit. I don't know what it's going to be like. But the marriage celebration is going to be something. And we're the bride. We're the bride of Christ. I love Israel, but they're not the bride. Only Jews that have trusted Jesus during the church age are part of the bride. But we're going to have the marriage of the Lamb. And then, blessed are those, chapter 20. And this will take a few moments to explain. Chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. Blessed are those that have part in the first resurrection. Chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, but the rest of the dead live not again to the thousand years were finished. This, referring to the previous verse, is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such a second death hath, hath no power. Now what is the difference, Pastor, in the first and second resurrection? And what is the rapture? Isn't that a resurrection? No, it's not considered a resurrection. These were Jews who had knowledge of the Old Testament and they were writing about resurrections. And there's two resurrections. The rapture of the church was something that Jew never could comprehend or even see. If you see, if you see these charts where you're looking across the horizon and you see this dip of the church age, Jews never could see the church. They would look across time and they would see the tribulation. They refer to it as Jacob's trouble. And then they'd see the millennial reign. And they would see the resurrection of the, those who were uh, martyred after the tribulation period and raised. And that was the first resurrection. It's a blessing. Those tribulation saints were raised. Most scholars believe the Old Testament saints were raised at that time as well. It clearly says... The tribulation saints were raised at the first resurrection, those who were martyred. But the second resurrection they see at the end of the thousand years is a great white throne judgment when all the dead in Christ shall be raised. So here he says, blessed is he that hath part in the first resurrection. All right? And that is referring to Jews during the tribulation period who would be decapitated or die during that time. The rapture is not considered, while it is a resurrection from our perspective as far as explaining it, it's never called that in, in, in the scriptures. And scholars don't ever refer to it as a resurrection either. We, we identify that as a rapture. It happens so quickly. It's sudden. It's a surprise. And the Jews just do not understand the rapture or that church era that, that we're in now. Why? First of all, they don't accept the New Testament. And that's sad, but we understand there are two resurrections. Look at some scriptures on that. John 5, 29. John 5, 29. And most of you or some of you know this by heart. John chapter 5 and verse 29, and shall come forth. They that have, we're talking about the resurrection, says verse 20, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. 
They that have done good under the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. The second one is later. It's named in the second place. This is not talking about the rapture either. John's talking about the resurrection. Look at Luke 14, 14. Verses you're familiar with, I'm sure. A lot of Christians go to Matthew 24 and 25 and think that's all about the rapture. It's not about the rapture. It's about the return to the earth, the second advent. Luke 14, 14, it says here in the second half, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. And that is at the end of the tribulation period. And then Daniel 12, 2. I like, there's other verses, but this, we'll just turn to Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Daniel 12, 2. And you want to mark this. And of course, understand the Old Testament scholars read this. Daniel, of course, was inspired to write. Inspiration means God breathed. God told him what to write. It was the men who were inspired, not your ink in your page, but the men God breathed on. People don't understand inspiration today, and we have a lot of false teaching. Men were inspired, 40 of them, who wrote 66 books. We talk about Enoch in Jude, and that I know some people struggled maybe understanding that, but the words of Enoch that Jude recorded, remember, were inspired because God told Jude to write them down. We don't accept the book of Enoch. We have what we call the canon of Scripture, and we explained that already. But look here at uh, Daniel 12, 2. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, there's a thousand years in between the good, good resurrection and the bad resurrection. And so the resurrection of good and the resurrection of evil. Back to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 7. Another, we call these Beatitudes, so they're technically not uh, the same as the Beatitudes in Matthew. We call these Beatitudes just to help you remember. And here it says, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the saying of the prophecy of this book. Now the phrase, I come quickly does not mean that, John, I'm going to be here next week. The grammar there is clear in the original that once everything starts, it's going to move quickly. When God says, go, bam, Jesus wraps the church. Bam, seven years tribulation. Bam, the millennium is ushered in, where we come back with him. So it doesn't mean to John that he's coming next week. While the apostles did look for his coming, that was the right thing to do. And we're still supposed to be looking for his coming, living right, living morally pure, and look for his coming. But we've been waiting. They've been, John's long gone. This is 2,000 years ago, 95 AD or so when John wrote. And we're still looking for his coming. But it says, once it happens, it's going to unfold quickly. And it says, blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Similar to chapter 1 in verse 3. Blessed are those who obey the word of God. Look at 22, 14, same chapter. He reiterates the same thing. Blessed are they that, re, that, excuse me, blessed are they that do his commandments. Now these aren't words of red. Let me explain to you that all scripture is given by inspiration, not just the words in red. God told people what to write, but this is not the words of Jesus, but they're still inspired. Blessed are they that do his commandments. 
There's something about practicing God's commandments that people really don't understand. Our lives should just be a living example of consistent obedience. You know, I've always struggled when I preached and I sometimes when I preached in Okinawa, certain people would come forward about every other week. And I thought, something's wrong when you've got to rededicate <laughs> every other week. Now, if you need to rededicate, our altars are open. You come. This is not about you. But when I had people that would every second or third week be down there rededicating their lives, they make an emotional experience or emotional decision based on a passionate message, come forward and make this decision. And oftentimes they'd tell the church, I've been backslidden, I'm rededicating my life. Two or three weeks later, they're back again. I'm backslidden, I'm rededicating my life. I, think, I don't remember who it was. I, I think it was, I remember one scholar saying this. I have to think hard. I better just move on and say what he said. He said, you don't have to rededicate if you're already dedicated. We are supposed to be like Christ. If we're Christians, and we use that word Christian, that means Christ-like. Our lives should be an example. We shouldn't have to rededicate all the time. Dedicate yourselves from the time you're saved to, to love the Lord, to read his word, to pray, and to live for him. The reason people always have to rededicate is they're not dedicated Monday through Saturday. They don't pray, they don't read their Bible, they don't witness, they don't live right, and they're wishy-washy, and the, the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. It's not just about Sunday. Every day, get on your knees, confess your sin. That's how to rededicate. Every day. God, I had that bad thought. Lord, I was rude to someone at work. Every day, confess your faults. Confess your sins, excuse me. Then here, blessed are those who obey his command. Now, Luke 13 is our last place. I'll refer to 2 Corinthians 7, but we're going to Luke 13. We are out of time shortly. Luke chapter 13 and verses 3 and 5. We talk about obeying his commandments. There's one commandment that is a prerequisite to all other commandments. And, and I, I like what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Here was a Pharisee, someone who had studied, somebody who knew quite a bit about the law, a man who lived a good life. But Jesus said unto him, Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye or you, you must be born again. Without obeying the commandment of repentance and faith, obeying the other commands don't matter. Many are going to stand before the Lord talk about what they did for God, and he'll say, I never. You see, the first commandment is repentance. Luke 13, 3, I say unto you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. If you don't repent, you perish. Verse 5, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Repentance and confession are different things. We repent when we trust Jesus. We repent of the fact that we're a sinner and we've committed sin. And repentance, the definition, there's several definitions I wrote down, the one I thought was best. It's the first commandment. It means to sorrow and to have a change of heart leading 
to a turning away from sin. There's several Greek words in that definition, but it means to be sorry for the fact that we've been sinners and to ask God for forgiveness and then to plan, to purpose in your heart to turn. It's not just to get out of jail free card. So many times people who have been in great trouble or in great debt, all of a sudden they get saved. And if it's, if it's sincere, thank God for that salvation. But so many times we know people, all of us know people that made a decision because they needed help and that was it. Never see them again. Their life doesn't change. The first commandment necessary is repentance and faith. And if someone doesn't repent, they can't know God. It's harder for a rich person to be saved than for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, an eye of a needle. You say, well, that's impossible. It is impossible without Jesus Christ humbling that person. I've heard preachers say, well, the eye of the needle is uh, on archway going into the city and the camel has to get down on his knees and go through. And that may sound real sensational and may really excite a crowd, but there's no, nothing, there's nothing out there that says that that's what that means. The eye of the needle is a sewing needle. The idea is that without faith, it's impossible. Without repentance, it's impossible to be saved. So people who are arrogant because of their money or their education or whatever cannot know God because they're not willing to repent. Repentance includes the idea of a word we use nowadays is the word brokenness. There's something about a believer who's been broken. That's the person who's always sweet and kind, always willing to say they're sorry, always willing to go the extra mile for someone. You never see the bitterness in them, the sassy mouth, the sarcasm. They're just always special. You know why they've been broken? They've been humbled. And we all need to be humbled. We either humble ourselves or God will break us. And I mentioned 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're not going to turn there for sake of time. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, it talks about the different types of repentance. And I'll just paraphrase. There are people who repent because they get caught. I mean, I, I've known so many people, and you have as well, and they've been on national TV, TV. They get caught, and they stand up, oh, I'm so sorry. But the word actually just means simply regret. Regret because you were exposed. And there's a, there's a repentance that's not godly, Corinthians talks about. Everyone regrets getting caught. There's also another Greek word, repent, which means simply to change your mind. While we ought to do that, even God repents in that way. Now, God's never sinned. So that word is translated repent, where God repents of what he was going to do to the prophet or whatever. That doesn't mean God sinned and is asking forgiveness for sins. That's not what that means. It's another Greek word means to change his mind. God, thank God he changes his mind. But he changes his mind. But the word repent we're talking about is neither of those. It's not regret. It's not a change of mind. It means a brokenness, sorrow and a change of heart. The desire to turn away from a lifestyle. 
we had Mick come and preach and you know, his testimony I mentioned a couple times because I think it's a great testimony how his dad was an alcoholic for all those years. Well, if dad's an alcoholic, what is son going to turn out to be? Owns a bar and dealing drugs and all that. But when he got saved and truly repented, did he ever go back to owning clubs and dealing drugs? No. He preached for 50 years. You see, a lot of people regret. A lot of people change their mind. A lot of people make a decision at an emotional, and no offense to emotion, but all emotion is not of the Holy Spirit. Okay? I can get emotional at a ball game. That is not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's me enjoying a ball game. Sometimes we think that if a preacher's really loud and really sweating and ranting and raving, wow, that was the Holy Spirit. You don't, know, you don't know that it was. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. Holy Spirit speaks sometimes in a still, small voice. And while I like emotion in church, I'm thankful for the fact that we enjoy our music here. Amen? And I love it when people praise the Lord. I was at a church this morning, and the guy preached on praising the Lord, praising the Lord. And he kept saying, Amen, Brother Dan. And I mean, I said Amen 50 times in that service. And uh, he, he, he was wound up about praising the Lord. But my mother, I don't think my mother ever said a word in church. But I know my mother was praising the Lord. And I know she was stirred because her nose would be red. <laughs> She'd be crying every time she heard the word preached. And so we have people who make these big decisions. Sometimes they publicize it and there's no change in their life. Only God can change us on the inside. Only the Holy Spirit can draw us to God and bring us to the place of repentance. It's not a bad experience. It's not a bad accident. It's not a breakup of a marriage. It's when God draws us to himself by the Holy Spirit that we come to the place and say, I'm rotten. I'm lost. I want to turn from that lifestyle. God help me. And when that brokenness comes, the grace of God is all over that, folks. And that is what changes lives. It's not even a decision we make. It's God bringing us to a place of decision we think we make. <laughs> but who, who, who prepared our heart and brought us to that place in our life? I love that when God breaks a man. And one day I'll preach a message when God breaks a man. I've known some great men God has broken. And you say, oh, that's sad. No, it's wonderful. When you know someone who's had a ton of money, arrogant and difficult, and God broke that man and that man came to know God and they ended up being the sweetest, kindest person, you recognize that was a work of God. Amen. But repentance is the first command required of every sinful person. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word today for the Beatitudes. And Lord, blessed are those who read the prophecy of the Apocalypse of John, the unveiling of this awesome book. Read them and obey the word and do the word and take part in that 
if it were a Jew, that second resurrection, if, if, if it were us, would take part, we're going to be part of that rapture. Lord, thank you for that. Lord, help us to be obedient to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.